Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Gary Slater. Gary is also an accredited sports dietitian. He's the Associate Professor of Nutrition and Dietetics at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is also the National Nutrition Lead for the Australian Institute of Sport and a Level 3 ISAC anthropometrist, which we will explain in a minute. And he is the co-author of the chapter on assessing body composition of athletes in the Sports Nutrition for Para-Athletes second edition book. So welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thanks for having me along, Lizzie. Yeah, it's great to be able to chat with you. I've been wanting to do this for a little while, but I think uh, we're going to have a really good conversation about assessing body composition and why do we do that and is that useful for for athletes and how does it relate to performance but firstly can you give us a bit of a brief background on yourself and how you got into sports nutrition sure look I, I I feel like I was really lucky that I knew what I wanted to do by the time I was 14 or 15 years of age <laughs> I had a a PE teacher during high school that, that clearly had an interest in nutrition. And so that was naturally integrated into the theory associated with my PE course. And, and it got me thinking about, you know, my, my interest in, in food and my interest in sport. It's like, you know, is there a career in this? And, you know, lo and behold, after chatting with the, the guidance counsellor that you could go down that path and some, or a number of years later, um, <laughs> then um, I find myself living the dream and getting paid to work in my hobby. Mm. Well, and work hard you do. You've got many, many things that you do. You're always a busy man and hard to catch. So I'm very grateful that we've got your time. Can you start us off on the conversation around body composition by telling us, telling us what we mean by physique and assessment of physique or body composition? Yeah, look, I might start with a separation of the two terms between physique and body composition because that, that might help us provide some clarity. From body composition, we're really looking at that breakdown of the different components of it uh, and its simplest form into to fat mass and fat-free mass. The fat mm -hmm. mass, we think about the fat that's just below our skin, but there's also fat through our internal organs. And the fat-free mass will incorporate muscle, but our internal organs, our blood, et cetera, et cetera. Body composition forms a component of physique, but physique also takes into consideration issues such as someone's stature, arm length, leg length, trunk length, for example. And we think about the application of those variables to sport, then probably physique is a better term to use because we know that being taller in some sports might predispose someone to excellence, whereas other sports mm. being shorter might predispose them to excellence. Now, they're not variables, obviously, that we can manipulate when we're talking about stature or arm length or leg length, um, but we do recognise that there are broader components to the way that an athlete presents that may or may not predispose them to excellence within a sport. And I've got to say right from the outset, Lizzie, when we talk about that, we have to recognise that whether we talk body composition or physique traits, the influence that they have on performance can vary quite markedly between sports, but often the association is a relatively small one. And I fear that perhaps historically, 
we've overemphasized the importance of, of specific physique traits or specific components of the person's body composition to their competitive success. Yeah, because, you know, everyone's unique and they have their own strengths and their own weaknesses. And just because they have a specific physique trait doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the best in that sport. And just because they don't have that trait doesn't mean they can't be successful in that sport, correct? Absolutely. And a a classic example, I don't follow basketball, but I I recall seeing examples of of one of the most successful basketballers being, you know, significantly shorter than the other guys that they're playing in the basketball court. Um, Mm. Because while stature may play a role, there's a whole range of other factors that contribute to that skill development, being able to read a game, fitness traits, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Okay. And so why might we assess physique or body composition in an athlete? There's potentially a a number of reasons why it might be undertaken. I think historically it was more so about the presumption that body composition influenced performance outcomes. And and absolutely in some sports it does. I think we're understanding more so now that being able to, to monitor body composition of an athlete might also provide some insights in regards to to their overall health and and indices related to their nutritional status as well. For example, to ensure that a person is consuming enough to match their high energy expenditure that they they might have associated with training and competing in their sport. Mm -hmm. And do you think also that perhaps it might be at different times of the season protect like as you say you know making sure they're eating enough um, that perhaps their physique you if you can track an athlete over a time there might be a particular physique that is really strongly correlated with their perhaps best performance or their best training capability and that perhaps if they're not achieving that so say for example you've got an athlete who's in a big block of training but they're really lean that maybe that's not a good thing because then they haven't got the energy reserves to cope with that big block great example Lizzie. like there's there's certainly some some recent research to show that you know when a person is consistently unable to match their energy intake to their energy expenditure that their ability to adapt to that training stimulus is compromised. And so we're, mm. we're using this as, you know, the, the monitoring of body composition and, and that example to be able to, to help hopefully prevent that person from going down a path where they don't adapt to the training block. And so it's, it, it's almost that awareness piece and identification of times where the person might be vulnerable to perhaps injury, um, but also not adapting to the training stimulus. Mm. And so how do we measure physique? Like what sort of tools are we talking about? There's a wide range of tools available. When I first started at the AIS, you know, we had uh, underwater weighing facilities and the likes. But if we, if we look at how it's evolved to the modern day within Australia, and it was identified as being appropriate to assess an athlete's body composition, then typically there's two tools that we might use. That's either using surface anthropometry. And so that, that typically is, is a skin fold assessment, which is looking at the fat that's just beneath the skin, typically on around about seven sites across the body. And that, they'd be normally landmarked. Why do we do seven sites? Well, 
it accommodates nuances associated with where people take off and put on body fat. Mm -hmm. The classic example would be the comparison between male and female distribution of body fat. Uh, We know that males tend to to store their body fat more around the trunk, around their their, their belly, if you like, um, whereas Mm -hmm. females tend to to carry that body fat through their, their lower body. So ensuring that there are sites that cover both upper and lower body ensures that that testing can be appropriate for both males and females. Mm-hmm. You might complement the skin folds with some other measures, girth measurements, for example, that might help to provide some insight in regards to, to that lean mass or that fat-free mass, and including skeletal muscle. And if we're thinking more broader physique-related variables, then we might start to look at arm length, leg length, trunk length, for example. Mm-hmm. The other tool that we might use more routinely within Australia would be the use of, of a DEXA scanner. Now, this is a tool that people might um, connect with as a means of being able to assess bone health. Mm-hmm. More recently, we've had an awareness that it, it, it's also a, a great tool for being able to assess body composition. And it really, you know, which of those tools would you use? It'll depend on the individual and you'd take the guidance of your referring practitioner. But to, to break it down most simply, if I needed to get an estimate of absolute body composition, for example, the amount of fat that a person has, I might use a DEXA scan. Mm-hmm. What sort of person would that be? That could be an example of a person in a weight category sport where you might try and do, to identify the most appropriate weight for that individual mm-hmm. or nuanced situations perhaps where there's been an injury. Um, the person has to go in for a shoulder reconstruction or that they've done an ACL and we want to we recognise if they're not training, there may be a loss of muscle mass and we might want to be able to track that to be able to see how effective our strategies are in helping to minimise that loss but also accentuating the restoration of that that muscle uh, during the person's rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. If we're just looking at being able to track an individual longitudinally over time and we don't need that absolute measure of fat or absolute measure of muscle, Something as simple as just a body mass and a sum of seven skin folds captured by an Isaac trained technician can be an invaluable way of being able to show the direction of change that might be occurring. And again, we might be able to to use that for a person where it's been identified that changes in their body composition might help their performance and or health outcomes. And the other aspect where you might be able to use uh, the, the surface anthropometry for the, so the skin folds and the likes might be benchmarking for the, the person around key periods of a season. It might be the start of a pre-season period or during competition, but also to be able to track growth in, in younger individuals as well. Mm. And so you, you mentioned Isaac trained anthropometrists. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and is that an international standard? How do you find those people? Yeah, sure. So ISAC stands for International Society for the Advancement of Kinanthropometry. Aren't we glad that they've briefed <laughs> it down to ISAC? Um, it's a bit and of a effectively, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's effectively a um, a program that's internationally recognised to to train individuals to a level where they've got a high degree of precision for taking these measurements. 
if there's an interest in being able to find a, an ISAC trained practitioner, you can actually jump on the ISAC website and identify technicians uh, who are available internationally. But within Australia, many sports dietitians and exercise scientists are appropriately trained uh, for undertaking ISAC assessment of individuals. And it involves a really tight framework around the landmarking and making sure that you get the same site each time so that the the ability to repeat measures and be confident that change is a real change not just because you've got a different site is pretty robust and it it's fairly tightly controlled correct Absolutely, Lizzie. Like the, there's, there's basically three days allocated to that that training for for just developing expertise on, on the capture. If it was a level one Isaac trained technician on on some twenty or so variables, that the landmarking is is key to it. They use bony landmarks. So if anyone, any of your your listeners have had it done before, you'll recognise that, um, that the person will will palpate different regions of the body to be able to find those bony landmarks. And the reason why they use the bony landmarks is that they don't change over time. There's, there's some nice research to show that just being out by one centimetre on where you identify each of those skinfold sites can have an influence on the results. We recognise mm-hmm. that uh, and spend a lot of time in being able to, to mark the person up appropriately because we, we recognise the importance of the data capture. Mm-hmm. And so then what about if you ha- were getting a DEXA scan done, is there some anything that you need to be aware of as an athlete or even as a practitioner that you have to make sure is undertaken in order for that to be more tightly standardised for body composition? Yeah, absolutely, Lizzie. And I, and I think, um, you know, a key thing here is that it wouldn't be something that I'd just you know, on the, the drop of a dime, go out and go, I'm going to go and get a DEXA scan. I'd be mm. engaging with a sports dietitian or, or a sports scientist to be able to better understand, do, do I need to have my body composition assessed? And if so, mm-hmm. what might be the most appropriate tool? And they'd be able to provide you with the guidance in regards to what is the most appropriate tool. And then being able to identify a centre that's got some expertise within this space, because most of the, the people undertaking these assessments will have expertise in regards to the use of DEXA for being able to assess bone health, but perhaps mm-hmm. not so much in regards to body composition, but we are trying to, to change that. We do know, for example, that we want to have people have those assessments done uh, in a rested state, so no exercise uh, on the day of testing. It needs to be overnight fasted, so no food, but also no fluid beforehand. Mm-hmm. Our own trial and error confirms that uh, you can have a DEXA scan, hop off that DEXA scan, drink two litres of water, jump back on the DEXA scanner, and that'll show up as two kilos of fat-free mass. And so the the, the repeating of, of, of how we have uh, athletes present for assessments is really, really important. And that's why I think for any athletes in the audience that are, that are interested in this space, go out and connect with their sports dietitian or their sports scientist to be able to, to firstly identify whether or not it's appropriate for them to have their body composition assessed and then to, to help them make decisions in regards to what are the most appropriate tools and how should I present for that assessment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of athletes, if they've had this done before, they may go, okay, this is skinnies that we're talking about, as in skin folds, and, and that may raise different emotions in them. I think, you know, some athletes see that as, oh, I'm getting my 
fat checked. They only think of it from a body fat perspective and they think of it perhaps in a negative framework. Is that why at the moment there's a bit of publicity around, certainly in Australia and also in other in other countries? I know in the US, uh, in one of the universities, they've actually said that they're not going to do body composition assessments at all because they feel that they're not appropriate. Is that part of the reason that perhaps it's it's got you know it's developed a negative connotation instead of the the perhaps the use that it can have in a more positive framework yeah look i, I think it, it is in part because it's seen through that liz um mm-hmm. it, it's a really really topical issue at the moment and i think anyone that, that's working with athletes their intent is never to cause any harm and i think for some that they've made that decision that they don't want to assess body composition of athletes what my counter to that is that it can actually be used as a tool to be able to help reduce risk for athletes. But it's something that we need to give due consideration as to whether or not it would be appropriate to assess the person's body composition. Um, mm. One of the things that we're looking at being able to try and reset the, the, the bar, if you like, and this relates more broadly to physique management or body composition management, is that if an athlete doesn't have access to a broader performance support team, and so that might incorporate their doc, a psychologist, the sports dietitian, the physiologist, and the strength and conditioning coach, then it's probably not appropriate for them to give consideration to manipulation of their body composition. And as a consequence, it would be inappropriate to have their body composition assessed. Mm-hmm. And we say that because, one, we want to be able to protect the health of the athlete. And we need to understand whether or not giving consideration to manipulation of their body composition and the associated measurements, is it going to have potential positive outcomes associated, but also is there any negative connotations associated with that? And if there Mm. are, how can we help to manage or to mitigate those negative implications? And I think it requires that broader connection between athlete, coach and their performance support team to be able to make those informed decisions. Yep. And there are a few other tools that have come out probably in the last few years and one of them in particular is ultrasound where I've seen some very fancy-looking reports saying, oh, you've got this percent body fat having used this ultrasound. Is that a tool that you think is useful to use or what are your thoughts on that side of things? Uh, It's certainly a space I'm keeping an eye on, in part because others internationally that I've got a lot of respect for are doing work in that space. I probably would draw an analogy with skin folds at the moment with the ultrasound Mm -hmm. in that, again, you're taking measurements across different regions of the body to be able to accommodate uh, nuances in regards to where individual athletes store their body fat. But it's not a tool that has the the validity to provide that estimate of of whole body composition at the moment. Mm -hmm. It it effectively is looking at an uncompressed skin fold, whereas the, the skin fold test, the surface anthropometry through Isaac, is looking at a double layer that's being compressed. Mm. So the, 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 both are providing an index of that fat that's just beneath the skin, but you need to, to then apply that data into to regression equations to be able to get estimates of, of whole body fat, but also um, the, the lean tissue by derivation. And there's, there's, there's so many sports where 
you know, I've got an interest in being able to, yes, explore someone's body fat levels, but just as interested, if not more interested, in looking at changes in the lean mass or the skeletal muscle, the muscle mass mm. of the athletes. Yeah, and that's potentially where some of the girths can come into play as well, which is not something that you would do with, with an ultrasound. You can't do a, a, a girth of a muscle Whereas with the surface anthropometry, the ISAC methodology, there's a number of girth or circumference measures that can potentially give you some indication of relative change in, in muscle if you're tracking over time. Yeah, or the, the example of the injured athlete, you know, an athlete that's had an ACL reconstruction, for example, being able to monitor that mid-thigh girth, um, where mm. you can also do some corrections for, for the, the skinfold data as well, can help to provide some real insight in regards to, to whether or not your interventions following surgery, but also during the rehabilitation period are bringing you closer to normality or getting the person fully recovered. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a parasports nutrition podcast, so we can't not think about, well, how do we translate this into a para-athlete? And obviously for some para-athletes, it's a fairly straightforward translation. You know, someone with a vision impairment still has a, a physique that is not dissimilar to an able-bodied athlete in terms of its structure, you know, in terms of the limbs, limb proportionality and things like that. But what about how do we apply these methods and can we apply these methods in spinal cord injured, in someone with cerebral palsy that has quite substantial muscle atrophy or people with you know, amputees, all of those, all the other types of impairments that perhaps are physically different than what your standard expectation would be for, I guess, a, a, a human body in the greater sense of the word? Yeah, look, there, there's certainly some some nuances that come uh, in dealing with para-athletes. You know, an example for, for me would be, you know, perhaps an athlete that had some form of tremor, then it would be inappropriate to do a DEXA scan on them because that they need to remain still during the testing. Mm. But I think some of the, the challenges that we come up with a para-athlete, that there's probably synergies with non-para-athletes as well because so often we're looking at actually just tracking that individual longitudinally over time, not comparing within a squad or even comparing them against normative data for which that there's only a few sports in which there is normative data available. And so you're applying those same principles to a para-athlete. I've got an interest in being able to monitor your body composition, but I'm actually using you as the reference point to be able to draw comparison. And that the real value in some of this testing often comes in looking at that longitudinal monitoring of the individual. The example you drew before, you know, an athlete's just about to go into a, a big block of training and they're already very, very lean, you know, at a level of leanness that they might, you know, identify as their, their aspiration for a, a, a very important competition. It's like, we need to monitor you really, really careful during this time and we might need to be more aggressive with your nutrition strategies to help ensure that you come out of this training block in, in your best possible way. Mm. And I think one of the things that I see and having worked with a number of para-athletes is they may get a DEXA scan done, for example, and DEXA will give you a percentage body fat, but they're comparing 
themselves and the report that often comes out is comparing themselves to or comparing them to a reference population. And in a lot of cases, you can't because I think, you know, if you take, for example, someone with substantial muscle atrophy, automatically their percentage body fat will be higher simply because they've got less proportional amount of muscle mass for the volume of the the body. But that's not accounted for in, in the reports that can be generated. So how do we need to sort of approach that side of things when working with a para-athlete in, in order for them to get the right messages? Um, don't, don't look at the reports, Leslie. Um, <laughs> I was just in a, in a meeting yesterday where we're looking at being able with our, uh, our IT folks at the AIS in being able to automate the upload of the raw data that's coming out of the DEXA scanner into our athlete management system that would enable us to be able to generate our own reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, the example you described to me then just with the, the percentage body fat data is the exact reason why I don't ever use percentage body fat. Mm-hmm. Very few people realise that changes in lean mass influence percentage body fat just as much as changes in fat mass. And so I tend to just look at the raw data. So that might be the, the absolute fat mass and the absolute fat free mass. And then from that, being able to, when we're looking at these longitudinal changes, recognise that that every test a person does, whether it be skin folds, DEX or a blood test, every test has noise in it. But if we can quantify that noise, that becomes particularly helpful for us in being able to infer what's a true change longitudinally versus what's just noise in the test. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other thing is in terms of, when you might do a a body composition or a physique assessment, do you feel as though there should be other measures of performance or health and well-being done at the same time so that you're looking at a wider collective of information? Like physique is one component that can influence health and well-being and performance, but there's many other components. So how... How important do you think it is that there's other reference points around there that you can use at the same time? Great question, Lizzie. And really what you've just described is what we're setting up or advocating as the benchmark in moving forward, that the only time that you would capture information on body composition or physique is when it's time-stamped with other relevant information, whether that be health and or performance or indices of fitness traits. Because without those other variables, you have no idea whether or not these body composition changes are bringing the athlete closer to where we want them to be or actually taking them further away from that. So that information Mm. becomes critical. And it's the reason why, you know, again, we advocate for the athlete to, to no longer be doing this by themselves or to be doing it just with their coach or just Mm. with their sports dietitian. It needs to be a a collaborative agreement between athlete, coach, and that broader performance support team Mm. to be able to better understand, you know, these body composition changes that we're seeing, uh, are they helping the athlete from a health and or performance perspective, or are they taking them backwards? Mm. Yep, absolutely. So, If you had an athlete who came to you and said, you know, I've been told I have to get my body composition done, can you do that for me? 
what sort of conversation would you have with that athlete? I'd first like to be able to understand the, the reasoning behind why the person's been referred for their body composition to be assessed. Uh, and that might help to be able to facilitate a conversation with the athlete, their coach and their broader performance support team. And it might create an opportunity to be able to give a broader consideration in regards to to physique and whether or not that's something that would be appropriate for the athlete um, to give consideration to or not. We recognise that any time there is consideration given to manipulation of body composition, for example, then it can place the athlete at risk, at risk of not being able to better match their energy intake to their expenditure, at risk mm -hmm. of potentially harming their eating behaviours and their relationship with food. Uh, and so we need to give a much higher consideration to the issue. Mm. My goal is that these considerations uh, associated with physique manipulation and physique assessment as a, as a tool to, to, to influence performance is that it's given much higher consideration. Now, that's not to say we want to give it a higher elevation in regards to its impact on performance that we want to give it a heightened consideration as to whether or not it would be appropriate for the athlete to give consideration to that, mm. just like you would with any other potential performance-influencing strategy. The example I often use is an athlete going to altitude. Now, if an athlete has an interest in going to altitude, that, that consideration is not made on a whim and the next day they go to altitude. Mm. Conversation starts to be had between the athlete and their coach Perhaps they get the sports doc involved because we need to get an assessment of their iron status to ensure they'll get the most out of the altitude exposure. Mm -hmm. We'd want to engage the physiologist because we know that when athletes go to altitude, they're at an increased risk of, dare I say it, cooking themselves. Mm. And then we want to be able to monitor them intensively during that period of altitude exposure and as they come out to be able to better understand how they respond. And we want to try and do the same thing with considerations given to physique management. We want to be able to support the athlete if it has been deemed appropriate for them to give consideration to, to manipulation so that we can really help to reduce any adverse risks, to monitor them closely during that time to ensure that the changes that we are seeing are bringing the, the athlete closer to the performance outcome they might be uh, hoping to achieve. Mm. Yeah. And what about any recommendations that you have to coaches and maybe practitioners in terms of the, the, the conversation that need to be had and the understanding that athletes have a choice and should always be given the choice as to whether they have their physique done or not? Yeah, so I'll touch on the um, that, that latter point straight away. And it's, again, it's, it's really, really topical in regards to, to seeking consent from an athlete. And, and we want to be able to ensure we put another word in front of that, and that's the informed consent. And so an athlete mm -hmm. has an appreciation of what they're to be exposed to, the, the pros and cons associated with the information that might come from that, and that they have ownership of that data. Mm. With that in mind, if, if any of your audience have an interest in this space, uh, they can jump on the AOS website uh, and look up our DEXA best practice guidelines that were just released um, yesterday 
and there's details in there in regards to you know what might be required from a consent perspective for both surface anthropometry the skin folds as well as dexa number of video clips that um, are informative in regards to what an athlete might be exposed to and their requirements in advance of testing so that they're, they're better able to, to make a truly informed decision in regards to the conversation piece between the, the coach and their performance support team I think they're really, really important conversations to be had and they're ones in which I think all parties need to come together for those conversations because no one practitioner, athlete or coach is probably in a position by themselves to be able to make a a truly informed opinion as to whether or not manipulation of an athlete's physique traits is likely to offer benefit to them. And I think historically we've with both athletes, coaches, and, and perhaps also performance support team um, personnel, we've perhaps overemphasised the association between physique and competitive success. Mm. As we alluded to earlier, there are some sports where physique does influence competitive success, but typically the impact is, is only relatively small. In some sports, there's simply no association. Um, if we think of purely skill-based sports, and you might question why an athlete would have their body composition assessed or considerations given to manipulation of their their physique traits, their body composition, because that there simply isn't a connection back there with performance. Perhaps the counter to that is that that maybe there are health implications that might need, need to, be, to be given consideration to. But it's it's really such a, an individual approach to this, Lizzie, because even within sports where there, there might be a connection between the person's body composition or physique and competitive success, what we're challenged with is knowing at what point is the person being over or under muscled, over or under fat, contributing to adverse health and or performance outcomes. Mm. Yep. And that includes their mental health as, as well as their physical health. Yeah, a- absolutely. And that's where, you know, the other thing that we're advocating for or trying to benchmark is that even if it is identified as being a- appropriate or we can justify having the the athletes physique traits assessed that we would advocate that that athletes might be screened in advance of that assessment to be able to confirm there's there's no issues from an eating behavior or a body image perspective Uh, Mm because again we everyone i think typically has or should have uh, the athlete's best interests in, in mind at all times yeah absolutely Fantastic. I think, you know, we could we could talk forever on this, but I think you've put it very nicely in a in a little nutshell. I will provide the details of the AIS website that you mentioned, the DEXA best practice guidelines at the end of the podcast for the listeners. So Gaz, you've given us a, a lot of your valuable time and I really appreciate it. And I know that it is a, a it is creating a lot of interest in the media. Unfortunately, the media can also over-exaggerate <laughs> and um, perhaps perhaps misalign some of the information. So it was really useful to just put it, an explanation behind what it is and, and how you can use it. And I think, uh, I think we need to move away from body composition being a, an assessment of body fat and that being it. It's a more powerful tool, but it's got to be used appropriately in the right circumstances and with the right intent and, and 
uh, context with the athlete really fully engaged and understanding in how that's going to interplay with and, and interact with all the other things that they're trying to achieve to be the best athlete that they can. Yeah, I think, you know, one word that I really picked up on that one is the engagement piece with the athletes. Mm-hmm. They're not a passive bystander in this process. And as you alluded to before, they have the right to to be fully engaged in the process, to be informed in regards to the, what, what's to be done, the pros and cons associated with it. And then when collectively that have, they've got that information and they choose not to participate, then that's going to be perfectly okay with everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There may be a time and a place where it is uh, something that they choose to do, but maybe not right then and, and you know, not in that context. So, yeah, it, there's a time and a place potentially uh, and that needs to be respected. Yeah, and, and to, to show that, you know, the potential benefits and, you know, some of the stuff that we've spoken about, better aligning those assessments of body composition with, you know, performance or fitness traits so that we can better interpret the implications of those sorts of things. Yeah. I remember when I first started in the US that we faced a scenario where athletes had had body composition done on them before, but they said to me, oh, we never got the results. And I think that is a clear example of where the athlete's not part of that conversation and not part of the engagement and I, I think it, it, as you say quite rightly it's the athlete's data and they should be fully engaged in that process and understand the information as it comes out and, and be able to say whether they want to do that or not. Absolutely. Mm. Well guys, I'm going to let you go but you don't get away without the final question which if you've listen to any of the podcasts that we've done up to date you'll know what that is but what's your favorite food my favorite food can coffee be food lizzie oh now somebody's already asked that before and i think we actually agreed that it could be Uh, and and often early in the morning it'll be complemented with some thick cut fruit sourdough toast um (laughs) i find that as a wonderful way to be able to start the day do you like anything spread on your thick-cut sourdough toast? Um, I'm a bit partial to some honey or jam, but it mm. depends on the location. Typically, it's in the car going somewhere, so it, it might be just <laughs> stuffed into a brown paper bag and I chew on it. Yeah, you don't want the honey going everywhere all over your exactly. lap your hands. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I have fond memories of, of when you first started at the Australian Institute of Sport and I would have said that your favourite food was any food that you could eat because you were a, <laughs> an, an incredible consumer. I think you got through more food than I did in a day before you'd even got through the first part of the morning. So. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. Any, was anyone who sees Skaz, you, you can tell that he's he has a very healthy focus on Sufficient muscle mass. <laughs> I uh, I didn't realise uh, how expensive six tubs of yogurt a day was, Lizzie, until I, I left Resi's. <laughs> I, I, I built up that addiction while I was in residence and then it was like, oh, my God, I, I spend that much on yogurt a day? I, I've, I've moderated my dairy intake since. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, thank you, Gary. You've been a, a wealth of knowledge and I really appreciate your time and your expertise in this area. 
and we'll look forward to hearing some more on this topic and I know that there's some projects that you're working on so we'll look forward to seeing them come to fruition in the near future. Thanks Lizzie and I'll, I'll be sure to keep you in the loop. Gary has some really great advice in regards to the best ways to go about undertaking physique assessment if that's the best option to do at that point in time. The two websites that we mentioned, the ISAC one is isac.global, G-L-O-B-A-L, and the AIS best practice guidelines is ais.gov.au and do a search on best practice guidelines and DEXA. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and please share it with your family and friends. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Miriam Van Rijn, who is a sports dietitian with the Dutch wheelchair tennis team.